Hello, I'm Josh Way. And I'm Ben Eggleston. Welcome to our podcast here at Shutter Speed Media. This is a podcast for people interested in video and photo production in the automotive industry. Our goal is to share, educate, and entertain you with stories and experiences we have, plus bring on awesome guests to share their experiences in this field. And Ben, today we've got another incredible guest today, one uh, guy who I've admired for a very long time and uh, followed his work and seen it just go from... Um, I don't know, just car photography to like crazy digital art creations that have no doubt taken uh, years of experience and a lot of hard work. And it's going to be great to uh, chat with him today. Um, that man is Richard Thompson III. So Richard, how are you doing today? Pretty good, guys. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Um, so you are in L.A., correct? I'm in L.A., that's right. Okay. Um, so I would like to get started just kind of hearing maybe where you started out in, in photography or where did it start in photography? This, this creative journey of yours? Um, how did it start off? That's, uh, maybe a tough one to answer. Um, so my mom was an art teacher, a uh, high school art teacher for a while, you know, um, and her also, she's got a lot of career paths, but you know, I was sort of raised by an art teacher. So okay. from a very young age, High school. Uh, put into life drawing classes. Oh, I mean, at the age of four or five, my mom had me in life drawing classes and working with clay pottery and things like that. So okay. from a very young age. Um, yeah, also it was a single parent household. You know, my parents were divorced. So okay. my mom had a lot, you know, all the time with us. She had sole custody. So when me and my uh, younger brother, Chris, were kids, she'd always be trying to get us involved in some art activities or things like that. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it started with just a love for, for traditional art and media. Yeah, so uh, um, from a young age, it sounds like um, an appreciation for different mediums was uh, was ingrained in who you are. So that's cool. Yeah, yeah, and my uh, my father was a, an outdoorsman and a bit of a photographer, and always had a camera with him. And I had some family members that worked in the um, commercial, you know, like the retail camera business. Uh, kind of dating myself a little bit. The big camera <laughs> stores used to be called Ritz and Wolf. Okay. And, um, you know, it's kind of like where you want, went if you wanted to buy a camera or something. And I had a family member who worked there. So, you know, when I was, was young, I was, you know, kind of gifted uh, cheap 35 millimeter cameras for Christmas and my birthday and so on. Yeah. And uh, took to messing around with those at an early age. They're just sort of like, you know, running around in the woods with my dad and shooting pictures with his camera, going on hikes and stuff like that. So I'd say probably landscape photography is really kind of where it started for me. Okay, cool. So have you always been in California? No, no. I grew up uh, in New Orleans mostly. Um, I was born in Pennsylvania. And uh, when I was really young, my, my mom moved to, uh, got remarried. We moved to uh, New Orleans. Okay. So is that, um, and did, so you, I went to, did you ever run great, into Webb man. down there? It was amazing. Yeah, Webb and I were friends. In fact, you know, that's how he started shooting cars. Okay. Um, so we met at uh, we met at college. He and I went to the same college and, and are from New Orleans. Nice. And um, yeah, he uh, he jumped out in front of my car one day in the college parking lot to take a picture of it. And I almost mowed him down. <laughs> no and way. I was like, oh, my God, dude, I'm so sorry. You know, oh, shit. And then, you know, we met and uh, became friends. Nice. Well, well, what car were you driving at the time? I had a Nissan 350Z, and it was the year it came out. So it was one of like the first few hundred nice. cars in the country I had somehow locked into. So yeah, well, was, at that time it was something. 
Web was uh Web was like, oh damn, like new Nissan. Hey oh. That's hilarious. Mm -hmm. A bromance was started that day. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, no. Sure um, so photography, when did it become something that you knew you wanted to make a, a profession out of, like a, your career? Uh, probably in college. Okay. Um, I didn't go to school for photography straight up, although I did take a lot of photo classes. Um, I went to school for visual effects and motion graphics and compositing and stuff like that. So um, at the same time, I was going to school. You know, I went to Savannah, to SCAD, um, as Webb did. And um, there's like this old historic racetrack. It's considered to be the oldest racetrack on the East Coast. It's called Roman Road. Yep. And uh, I've been there. You know, it's not it's not the greatest track in the world. It's just a really old track that has been uh, subject to a lot of the issues that other racetracks in America have where neighborhoods encroach and complain about the noise. And even mm -hmm. though it was built in the middle of nowhere in the 50s, now it's like a, a situation. So there's also a terrible mix of materials for the surface on that track. It goes from concrete to asphalt to, you know, just hodgepodge. And uh, I used to um, go race out there and do some race instruction stuff out there and started shooting a lot of trackside pictures because I had a camera. Yeah. And it was just like practicing panning because it's a lot of fun to just go sit at the track and get your pans. Yeah, know, and that's, sharp. it's actually and, a really good um, track for panning too. Yeah, straightaway is nice to stand on the inside of and you can catch some great shots there. Well, the, uh, the last turn that comes out onto the straight. I was, uh, I was recently there and, and to update your thoughts on the place they actually did get uh it resurfaced in the past like couple of years so it has finally Amazing. it has finally been resurfaced and it's actually really smooth we we did some tracking car uh work around the track so amazing yeah i got to drive some really fast cars out there and it was super tricky right around the back last few turns before you came onto the straight there would be these these patches on the inside of the turns the inside of the radius where the material would change and in a big horsepower car, you've really got to change the way you're loading it up if you know you're about to slide out onto asphalt or concrete or something. Right. And I believe th those are off-camber turns as well, right? They're kind of like tilted to the one outside. One of them is, yeah. Okay, one of the outside, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's like the uh, it's like the carousel Road America, the same way it kind of slides yep. downhill. Just got to trust your, trust your uh, tires and your downforce and just go. I guess it was always somebody else's tires and somebody else's downforce, so I don't really... You know, I want to write that check. So, right. <laughs> well, that's the way to roll. Drive somebody else's car. Um, yeah, and do it. Do it at seven tenths or eight tenths, not the whole way. Yeah. Have you? So, have you? Are you a pretty proficient uh, driver at speed? Do you? Do you? Uh, I know all a lot of car photographers are car photographers, and we like to think we maybe are good at driving, but it's not always the case. Do you? You've had some seat time in tr some track stuff, though. Yeah, actually, you know, it really actually all comes back to my mom again. Um, the, the art teacher lady I was telling you about earlier, she was really into cars. She uh, used to, she had an Audi Quattro in the 80s, used to autocross it every weekend. Um, I can remember being four years, five years old and, and watching her do that. That's sick. And That's by the really time, cool. Um, I was at, by the time I was at driving age, she um, had been through formula racing school and sort of put it down that I would not be allowed to really do much more than have a driver's license. You know, she wasn't comfortable with me driving a sports car or anything until I had that training. And so when I was 16, 17, 18, I uh, went to Skip Barber Formula Racing School, um, did some of the competition programs, 
uh, got an SCCA license off of that and was really into, into um, you know, sports car racing. Uh, at the time I was in college, obviously I had that Nissan. Yeah. And, um, you know, probably for a little ways thereafter, maybe five years yeah. or so yeah. after college, I was really going out with all my friends in New Orleans and, you know, driving sports cars, doing track days, that kind of thing. That's great. That's that's more than a lot of people have done. It's, it sounds like way more than me too. So that's that's good. You probably spanked me on the on the racetrack, but um, that's sweet. Have you, do you feel like that training has helped helped you as a photographer understanding racing or understanding cars or anything like that? Oh yeah, it definitely teaches you the you know more about the way the car wants to be seen. Sure. It also is just you know outside of competition and pushing it like car control great lessons in car control so makes me much more confident if i have to drive somebody else's big value sports car to a shoot or whatever uh, or if it starts raining or there's inclement weather even you know no matter what you're in right pouring down rain on the highway it feels good right. to be able to test out what the edge of the car is and not get in trouble doing it yeah well how good are you in the snow <laughs> you know i went actually i went to uh I went to the Southern Hemisphere Proving Grounds with Mercedes AMG maybe five years ago. They took me down to New Zealand in the summertime, in our summer for their winter. Yeah. And we drove up and did an entire two-day racing course in the snow. Wow. It was very interesting. What also, kind of... like, SL, SL65s, like, big, like, everything that Mercedes makes in the AMG range. Okay, but, that was, um, was going to be my question. The most, cars. the most fun is, you know, the easy ones are the, it's kind of funny. For most of the American people that were there, the rear-wheel drive cars were the easy ones. And for the European crew there, all the front-wheel drive cars were the easy ones. I have a much harder time in front-wheel drives in the snow. If it's about, um, you know, they have us doing like Scandinavian flicks in cloverleaf patterns. And so mm -hmm. you have to connect all of these drifts together. Okay. And in that situation, I find it way easier to be in like the, the big horsepower you know, front engine thing because uh, you barely have to use the throttle at all. It's really like, you know, just driving a boat around. Yep. But uh, the, I get uh, that. I mean, you're steering, with, you're steering with the throttle. That's the way it works in the snow. Exactly. But yep. with the front wheel drives, you know, the, it's probably because there's some, the, the weight of the engine is coming down on the drive wheels. Um, there, it would just like catch, you know, it wasn't a, as smooth of a process. You had to be much more mindful right. of the steering and throttle inputs on the front wheel drive stuff to get the drifts accomplished. Yep. We know, we know it well. Winter, winter stuff is our jam up here, but front wheel drive is is uh what everyone thinks you need but it, it's still it's harder to steer with i mean tires are the the ultimate deal breaker up here for winter but um yeah for for sure though i got a lot of friends that drive rear wheel drive and they do just fine with tire you know good snow tires but then they can also steer really well with with their throttle and have a lot of fun doing it so that's fun um so I'm curious though, how has CGI, let's get right into that. How has CGI stuff right. been an influence on you? Where, where did that start? Did it start back in college doing graphic stuff and all that? When, when did this thing start? It's, it's an important talk nowadays, I feel like, um, because there's a lot of people thinking, oh, maybe, you know, CGI is going to take over and photography is going to die off or um how can the two play together well i mean what what are your thoughts on the matter where did you start with it i'd love to hear your thoughts on the, the whole cgi talk i started 
pretty early with it, I think. Um, you know, like 20 years ago is really when it started for me. Um, I had a, a neighbor when I lived in New Orleans. If I remember this right, he worked at the University of New Orleans at their animation center in the late 90s. And um, there was a fellow at the college there named Dimitri. I can't remember his last name. He's like a red-haired Swedish dude. And this guy was one of the, he was like on the Pixar team who did Bugs Life. Nice. And uh, was working like with the first version of Maya. And uh, I got to see all this stuff, you know, while I was in high school. It blew my mind, um, needless to say. There was no way to afford access to that stuff at the time. You know, most of these things were being processed on a computer. Now doesn't even exist anymore called Silicon Graphics. I don't know if you remember SGI. I mean, really. Um, yeah, I've heard, I've heard of Colored them. computer cases. Yeah. Yeah, they were, they were the, the shit back in the day. They yeah. were the absolute shit. Like and uh, really darn you know, expensive. a workstation from them could be half, could be half a million dollars for a box that, you know, did very rudimentary things by today's standards. But uh, I wanted to get at that. And uh, so I went to SCAD because they had that, you know, they had SGI machines and they had, you know, Onyxes were mostly what we were using SCAD, but um, yeah. a lot of different pieces of hardware that, you know, we needed access to. So that's kind of was the, the early 2000s process for me was just trying to find where I could get at some of this stuff and take the classes. And then, you know, then, then I, then I finally got there and I took the classes and I realized like, holy shit, I think I'd rather be like, handed the control to a 747 after the pilot had a heart attack told I had to land <laughs> then do this shit because it's insane what the CGI used to take back then and it was really a mathematical process there was sure. very little art involved and um, you know in, in many of the visual effects realms compositing and so on all the software was node based but the node system was like really not intuitive or not well explored kind of drove me away from wanting to do any of that sure and uh so i you know you know the rest i wound up shooting a lot of practical photography in the time between then and now yeah um, and only recently have made a personal commitment to re-engage that software although i have worked with a lot of talented artists down the years when um, there's some need for that yeah sub sub some other pros in stuff like that yeah looking at your early stuff like going to like the very bottom of your instagram it you know it lacks anything cgi related and what was the the spark that brought that back was it just updated technology the accessibility of it or did you just see the the application it was a friend of mine from college who um kind of you know we, we were catching up about some project or something he also lives in la now and uh he was sort of listening to me rail against all the software and he stopped me and was kind of like, look, man, I hear where you're at. And I know, what, I know exactly what you mean, but like, I really think you should check out like how much has changed in the software in the last 10 or 15 years. And, uh, you know, here's a piece of software you should check out. And it was, he told me to, to look at the newest copy cinema 4d. So I downloaded the demo of that, and, you know, lo and behold, he was right. Uh, right. just, there's been a lot of advancements and I clearly was not the only person who felt the way I felt. Um, it, it has informed the way that software is designed. A lot of software is designed. Yeah. Uh, you know, as, as, and then in turn, as software is like Cinema 4D become more capable of a wider range of things, softwares like Maya and 3D Studio have to up their game to become more competitive and less terrible to use. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, update or die. So... Exactly. And also, you know, there's huge advancements in um, 
what I call YouTube university, like something that would have taken me a whole year to figure out in college takes like 15 minutes because there's a YouTube tutorial. Oh, right. totally. Yeah. Uh, and then GPUs, GPUs are fucking amazing. Like, whoa, it's like not having to do everything and then press a button to see what parts you fucked up. That, that was the worst part. Wait, I don't now know what's a GPU, rapidly... a graphics card. So oh, like, okay. yeah, that's what I'm always talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, what's and so being able to like? have this little dedicated having access to like a, a card you can stick in a computer that will bring your visualization ability up to real time is just like heaven sent. To, yeah. You know, in the world of being an artist and trying to see what you're doing and not trying to um, pull a bunch of levers and push a bunch of buttons. And then at the end, you finally get to see what it is you did. It's just sort of a weird way to, it's an idiosyncratic way to. To work i know mathematically it makes sense but as an artist it, it really doesn't so yeah love the gpus definitely uh, what is your uh do you work with a, a personal cgi rig or do you use something uh that's provided to you for uh for projects no i have a rig that i built um that i modified it was built by someone else who's very good at it and uh you know it was expensive and all that you know kind of sucks to pay a lot of money for a computer but if that's what you want to do yeah, that's what you need so yeah yeah how many how many graphics cards do you have and what kind so i have two nvidia quadro cards okay. i have a uh the previous generation which is a p6000 rtx and then i have this new card they dropped the quadro branding it's now just called a rtx a6000 okay um but basically, the R6, the A6000 is like a 3090, okay. uh, which is just produced to Quadro standards. So it has twice as much memory as a, it has 48 gigs of RAM instead of 24. Wow. And, um, <laughs> it, it's an in, internally cooled device. So instead of just blowing hot air around inside your computer case, it's actually sucking air from the inside of the computer case into the card and then shooting it out the back of the card. And the whole card is contained like a square to the edges so there's no way for the air to escape except through the back nice uh, that's really cool i've not had to use any of those uh quattro cards before the like the specifically designed cards but you know i game at home and so i'm familiar with you know the 30 series the 20 series and all that stuff i've seen a, a few people's cgi rigs and they are you know putting together four old like you know 1080 ti's to do big rendering projects you know SLI connecting mm -hmm. them and stuff so I wasn't sure if you uh yeah what kind of stuff it what kind of stuff you have and that's awesome though I mean with the stuff you're producing you have to have it quick and uh because I'm sure it just takes forever yeah it's also very hot <laughs> they get so hot I mean you could fry yeah. eggs on the back of those things and uh I mean you like I'm at the point where if my workstation is standing up the way it's designed it's causing serious heat issues. I I have to lay it down on the side. Oh no! And uh, rerun fans. I mean the the the, the new RTX cards uh, under full load will be more than two hundred degrees. Fahrenheit. You should, you should uh, so, if you've got some cash to drop, you should reach out to your buddy who helped you build it and uh, like liquid cool it, get it all. Uh... So it's all it's it's liquid cooled. Oh um, oh wow! It's a <laughs> very nice computer. The, the CPU temperature isn't, you know, because the, the cards are blower cards, um, mm -hmm. the temperatures are pretty much isolated to the card. In fact, okay. the full load on the GPUs, the, the CPU will probably only be two or three degrees C over, over um, idle. But uh, 
that doesn't stop those cards from being extremely hot. Yeah. They are plugged directly into PCI slots, and then you can start running into voltage issues. Sure. Um, above certain temperatures, and now you got PCI slots sharing power on the motherboard of the hard drive. You know, not yeah. to be too technical, but this can like cause a cascading effect. This system, is like so. we're, we're going down the nerd rabbit hole here. I I, I know nothing about this stuff. Yeah. Ben, ben geeks out on this stuff and he loves it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess my knowledge lacks in cars, yeah. so that's why I'm excited to to talk right. some CGI stuff. Like the the most CGI stuff that I've actually done isn't isn't much. If I'm not sure if you've heard of Blender, it's a totally open source sure. 3D software that. Oh yeah. I mean, it's awesome that you can download a program for free, and people are using Blender to make. Pixar level shorts, which is just so cool, and it's just getting better and better every year. So, and it's all free. You know, you can just you just have to have a computer yep. to run it, obviously. But uh, you know, there's a Unreal lot. Unreal of... also. Unreal oh, is yeah. incredible for the same reasons. Oh sure, yeah. I haven't used Unreal, but uh, yeah. So you you could you need another. You know, Unreal is sort of like a wrapper for other data, mm. so you can get it into that web viewable format or just something more efficient, but um, the do you know what uh, Quixel Megascans is? No, I haven't heard of that. So that's pretty amazing. That's like basically this huge library of laser scanned real life objects and mm. textures okay. that are all laser scanned poly and then photogrammetry textures. So like thousands and thousands of images of a rock in order to like realistically convey it. Wow. And if you, it, it's a subscription based service. Sure. Um, that a lot of professional CG studios use just because there's so many awesome things in there. Um, but if you use Unreal Engine, it's all free. Oh, wow. And so you suddenly have access to this massive library. You can't quite hit the same, you know, level of detail that you can if you're using the paid version of it. But for the purposes of visualization and internet games and whatever else, I mean, it's just free everything. Yeah. You can create the whole world out of that. Hmm. Have you guys ever heard of this thing called uh, Minecraft? I, I heard that's pretty <laughs> cool. I build stuff on that. Okay. Uh, I'd like to um, come back up the rabbit hole and start over um, on some car-related content of yours, Richard. I mean, sure. I, like the world, I feel like the car photography world has just always been just jaw-dropped at some of the stuff you've 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 put out there and more recently looking at some of your Mercedes work with these maybe partially real, partially CG work with like these alien ship type things. And I like who, who comes up with this stuff is a, is a, is an agency saying, Hey, here's an idea we have. We need you to execute it. Do you go into the saying, I'm going to just make these things up and rock and roll. And it looks like, I mean, some of the stuff is, it looks like straight out of Daniel Simon's like, you know, oblivion. It looks so, looks so like just beautifully designed and stuff. I mean, who how, explain yourself? It's so cool. <laughs> explain yourself. Well, thanks for saying all that. Um, I come up with all that. Uh, I'm a sci-fi nerd. Always yeah. have been. Um, and I think, I mean, I have a good enough relationship with uh, the folks that, um, you know work at the agency for Mercedes-Benz um, slash they're not crazy enough to try to get me to explain exactly what I'm doing. Never, you know, sure. they just know that I'm going to 
deliver some weird shit like that. There's uh, a level of trust that just like, yeah, show us something cool. Yeah. So there's, there's some projects where if I go and say, I want to do this crazy thing, you know, let's program it in. What car can we do it with? And they'll be amenable to that and uh, help me out. Yeah. Um, Sometimes it's for smaller clients that, you know, it's easier uh, when it's not a big car company and it's, you know, maybe a, a shop that uh, resells exotic sports cars and things like that. It's easier to uh, make the case to somebody like that. To steer it um, creatively? You mean? And then sometimes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Steer it creatively in a very abstract way that's, you know, this crazy light painting or some space wizard shit, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so that and um, then occasionally someone from an agency that reps some other car company will see what I've been up to for Mercedes-Benz uh, and and ask me to do the same thing for them, which for me, that's the success part because it just means I finally convinced uh, someone to come and request that on their own and uh, not have me put it forward at all. Yeah. Well, so, one thing I've run into is already it's already annoying in, in the legal in the legal sense is that like some companies that I've even worked with, you know, there's a, there's a creative direction that they, that they've wanted and we shoot it. And then they're like, all right, well, we'd kind of like to like own this style and, uh, and we don't want you to do it for anyone else that may be even like slightly a competitor. Maybe they're selling a car or like they're selling an idea that's similar. Have you run into any issues like creating these styles that, that, then a second client comes knocking on your door for, is there any, how do you, how do you approach that subject? Is it just, you just have no issue? Sure. Well, first of all, like, first of all, what you just said is a cute notion, but like you and I are the artists. You can I do whatever that. you want. Yeah. There's no, there's no, like, that's like, <laughs> okay, buddy. <You're> right. <laughs> um, but at, at the same time, just like out of respect for my clients and, and out of, out of the knowledge that, if you came up with one cool idea like that, you can certainly come up with 10 more. Um, I do try to create some diversity in the look and not do, you know, it's just boring to do the same thing twice. Right. If you can't like just, I was just, uh, you know, growing up in, in the birthplace of like jazz music um, and studying music as a kid, uh, there's like definitely a, an undercurrent in that whole, the whole concept of it really actually not just an undercurrent is like, keep it moving, like change it up. Right. You know, it's boring to do the same shit. Challenge, twice. challenge, challenge. And, challenge. Uh, yeah, it doesn't have to be a big one. Just, you know, just a little change in perspective or time or whatever. And make a big difference in the yeah. final appearance. So I don't really think, I don't really think that, um, that I would want to continue producing the exact same look for everyone. And you can see people who do. Mm-hmm. for sure yeah um and, and you're right they it's, you know, just they like, seems like some of those people kind of kind of fade away over time too like maybe maybe new... what the 15 minutes is about right that's the 15 minutes of fame sure and uh it's it's more easily identifiable in music for sure because you see people who have no ability to do anything except the one thing and they're very famous artists for the period of time that they're number one hit is on the singles chart. Right. And there's no adaptation. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, yeah. I've seen, you know, I've seen the, the Pagani work over the years. You must have connected with them and 
you've uh, done stuff for them on the road and like just regular photography stuff, but then seeing it translate now with, with some CG stuff has been, has been pretty neat. And like one of my favorites I'm seeing on Instagram is just, it's just a simple rear three quarter shot, but with just that nice purple gradient reflection down the side, I just, I just, that one's just always stood out to me as a, as a beautiful shot. I love that as a poster on my wall. You need to sell prints. Do you sell prints? Nice. Thank you. I don't really, I, I yeah. I never really have done that any kind of public facing way, you know, just for people whose uh, cars I photograph kind of a thing. Right. That one would look so good in like metal, like metallic, like on the wall. That just looks sick, but um, nice. Um, another one that I always uh, thought was pretty neat and I'm just curious how you kind of like approached it was that series that you did with the overlay of portraits with some space uh space background stuff that's just been uh really really neat. i think it's actually your profile picture right now that self-portrait but what was uh what was that sure that start that was that was the second series of a series of portraits i did of my friends in new orleans who are musicians um and the first series i had done was all like very high key white mm -hmm. and then the second series was this was, that was actually probably my first like uh, sort of space project I ever did, um, and it was done with a. Uh, it was all shot practically with a makeup artist. We uh, we had to paint everybody's face like in this special pigment paint. Really. And then got yeah yeah got matte what's called matte pigment. Um, it's just sort of like loose makeup effects powder. And then uh, we would all lay down on the ground and the makeup artist would take little pinches of it in her hands and just sort of throw it at our faces while our eyes were closed. <laughs> so it would hit, hit our faces like little comets and wow. make a little trail. And uh, then we photographed that and I did some photoshoppery on top of it to get the hair looking like uh, it was made out of a galaxy or something like that. Yeah. Well, it's well, it's well done. It I've, always, I've always thought that was a really cool set you did. Um, uh, I wanted to do more of those, but my friend who did the makeup, um, it just actually, she went to, uh, she's, she's the wife of one of my best friends from college, and we all went to college together and um, to art school, you know, and it's, right after that, she started a new career path and is now like a doctor. Oh, wow. So, that's weird. That's crazy. There won't be any more of that. <laughs> wonder if you could translate it to like car shapes somehow, like really abstract shapes on cars and do something similar, a similar idea. Just like some overlay of two different medias or, or types of things. But I mean, it's an interesting, cool thing. And um, I had another question, though, is we like to talk to our guests a little bit about just maybe a, a crazy random story from a shoot. Um, I know you've been around the world, around the country many times, doing stuff for various companies, Pagani's, you know, Mercedes, all the other big names you've worked with. Um, there must be something that you can think of pretty easily that maybe is just a, maybe something just went terribly wrong on a shoot or just an interesting story or, or something went really, really right on a shoot. Um, just curious if you have any, any crazy stories to share in that regard. Hmm. Well, such a broad question, my mind kind of goes blank. Okay. Um, 
How about something mm-hmm. goes wrong? Was there any really bad day that maybe you learned a really valuable lesson from on, on a shoot? Anything like that? No, I don't think so. I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't really visualize bad days like that. Well, I think that, I mean, what I do have to say about it, though, is that, like, I got to work in the movie business for five or six years and study under some really fantastic directors. Okay. And I've seen what, like, a bad day on set looks like and seen how people avoid it. And there's things that sometimes there's shit that's going to go wrong. You just got to have backups and you got to be pragmatic about what happens when, you know, the weather changes or whatever else. Sure. You know, if it's, this is, there are no bad days, really just a perspective uh, about lacking control, probably. Okay. Um, but yeah, you know, nobody, it's not a confident look when your client thinks you're having a bad day. Right. It's just not, you know, nobody wants to see the captain of the ship looking around with the steering wheel in his hands saying, where are we going? Right. Well, that's, um, that's, that's, that's a good that's a good thing. I mean, if you haven't experienced uh, any bad days necessarily, or or or, or just when something went catastrophic wrong on a shoot, then that that's a very good thing. Good planning and and uh, good backup um, backup plans for when things do happen. But that's good. So what I will do is I'll tell you a story. I worked with this guy. His name is Bob Hall. He Bob Hall is a famous first assistant camera first AC in the camera union, the local six hundred um, Hollywood filmmaker. He's the first AC on all the Chris Nolan Batman movies, uh, 310 to Yuma, like just a champ. Okay. And um, Bob, Bob and I worked on some movies together in New Orleans, and he's a drummer. So we, we, I introduced him to one of his, his uh, favorite drummers who was a New Orleans drummer. We spent a lot of time hanging out. And he told me this story about working on the Sean Connery movie, The Hunt for Red October. Oh, yeah which is a super famous movie. And Bob was, Bob was the second AC on that because it was earlier in his career. And they were on a Zodiac filming the submarine breaking through the surface of the water. Mm-hmm. And so he said he's got the lens kit open and the DOP says, all right, hand me the 50. So Bob grabs the 50 out of the case. You know, lens protocol on set is like both hands on the lens until someone else says they've got it. You yeah. don't let go of the lens until oh, someone, no. the next person says, got it. Oh, no. So Bob Bob here's got it, opens up his hands. Just as he opens his hands, they hit they, they hit a wave in the Zodiac, and the lens goes, boom, right in the drink. Oh. I'm sure it's 30 not... seconds till the submarine comes up. Oh. <laughs> 30 seconds till the submarine comes up. There's no lens on the camera. Oh. They need a 50. The DP looks at Bob and says, all right, you got a 40? That's that, that's the joke. It's also the mentality, right? That 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 okay. wins every shoot. Like when the, when the fifty goes in the ocean, it's time to get out the fucking forty. Yeah. Right. So like I don't know. I don't think there's really a bad day. You know, it's just that's funny. What's the next option? Sure. Yeah. Well, that's that that's a great lesson then. But yeah, that would have been a, a tense moment, I'm sure. And it's probably not easy coordinating a submarine breaking the surface. Uh, very easy. No, no, there ain't no, there ain't no do-overs on submarines. Right. <laughs> hey, let's uh, just uh, back it up. Let's do that one more time, please. Yeah, no, not. not yeah, back, to, back to one, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's crazy. That's where CGI comes in. <laughs> no, that's what that's what happened on that in Fast 1991 movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> he also told me the other funny story he told me about the uh, Hunt for Red October is that Sean Connery apparently has a line in his contract because he's a he's a theater actor who came out of like stage and theater acting in in England. Yeah. And I guess that the um the effect smoke and the haze that they used to use in theaters was like really fucking like cigarette smoke, like mm. just the worst. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he had a line in his contract that said if we're, if there's a set, you know, th- there can't be any atmospheric effects on set while Sean Connery is on set. Weird. And uh, yeah, yeah. So he said the first day Sean Connery came on the submarine, he c- climbed down the ladder, looked both ways, saw the smoke, said, laddie, either the smoke goes or I do, and walked right back up the ladder. Wow. So if you watch the movie, any scene that Sean Connery is in the submarine, there's no there's no effects haze, and then every shot he's not in, there's effects haze. Huh. Oh, crazy. Is that some just, like respiratory problem he has or something or just he's a Sean Connery. He didn't give a fuck. <laughs> he only did what he wanted to do. Have you ever seen that letter, famous letter floating around the internet where he responds to somebody who's asking him if he about an endorsement deal? I've seen it. it. Yeah. I don't remember what it said, but I remember I've read it at one point. That that was that was him. Yeah. Well he's the boss you know, he's just a boss, you know. Mm-hmm. Do it do it my way or he's the, the boss. my way. That's right. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. crazy. Uh, that's a great movie too. I have to rewatch that. It's been been some time. Uh, I I have a question. A I have a question. I don't know if we covered it already, but uh, your your style. You said you you're into uh, kind of retro. Is that what you said? Sci-fi. 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 That was it. But yeah, I see a lot of like very outrun and. Uh, yeah, like Outrun inspired like a period of your design work. Was that something that you, like what, what what did you watch? What like movies did you see that all of a sudden you're like, I love this color palette and I got to do stuff with this? The subject matter was more on the Sid Mead vibe. I've been like, you know, most of my life, a real huge fan of Ralph McQuarrie and Sid Mead, who were two of the concept artists who did all the concept art for Star Wars like the original Star Wars in the 70s, they were like the first people to visualize what Star Destroyers would look like and what sure. Darth Vader would look like. Wow. And um, Sid Mead, Sid Mead was, was he worked in Detroit. He worked for car companies. I think it was Cadillac, if I'm not mistaken. It was, I'm pretty sure, a GM brand. And uh, he, he left Detroit to come to LA and be a concept artist. Mm-hmm. And his art is just amazing. It is incredible. He was definitely like an alien sent to the earth to show us this shit. <laughs> it's so far outside of what anybody else ever visualized, just left field. And the guy really took the world by storm. I mean, so much of what we know about the futurism we see described in movies like Blade Runner and, and yeah. Star Wars and everything else is a direct product yeah. or two or three generations of other artists who were as inspired by him as I was. Um, he died here in LA, uh, last year, uh, maybe six, eight months ago. Um, his name, his name is spelled S Y D Sid M E A D Mead. And, um, you should check out some of his work. He was born in St. Yeah, Paul. It looks like probably he's, he's a local he's yeah, a yeah. Minnesota guy. That's crazy. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah. I've heard him before and it's rightfully so that you've, uh, You've been inspired by him because that guy, it, it really is otherworldly. I mean, um, wow. Yeah. I mean, right away I see the Blade Runner just, yeah. Inspired work. Stuff. Very inspired work. I love Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, so Blade I think Runner. that was kind of, 
thematically where those ideas came from. And then mm. the color palette was nothing so inspired. It was sure. really just, um, I had gotten super jaded about Instagram and Facebook and all that crap uh, and how it, you know, the whole unnecessary popularity piece of, of making artwork today and yeah. how many likes and attraction and all that. Right. And um, I was just, you know, it was also at a period where I wasn't posting very much. Yeah. And I kind of realized like that the easiest thing to do would be um, prey on this concept, which in color theory is called simultaneous contrast. And what happens is basically if you take two colors that are on the opposite sides of the color wheel and you put them right next to each other, mm -hmm. they become much more, much more of themselves. Um, mm -hmm. Blues become bluer when they're next to reds. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I just went about making a series of images and filling out my Instagram account with imagery that was color corrected into a style that represented simultaneous contrast. And, you know, it worked um, because our brains are pretty basic that way. And yep. backlit screens amplify color even more. And, yep. you know, works very well on the small screen. Yeah. So that's a, what that was about. Yeah, it's a very good, I mean, it's a very good exercise in, in uh, color stuff because I, I've always thought the same opposites on the wheel is, a, is always a good thing. And I was trying to stick yellows and blues and reds together. And I, it is, it is fun to go through mental exercises of, of colors too. And yeah, say what you will or whoever might be bashing anything, but like it works, it clicks in your brain as, as that's a cool thing when you, when you put the right colors together and I need to exercise more of that too. I have another question. Uh, I guess, how did your, uh, relationship with Pagani and Mercedes start? Did they see your style or mm. was it like they, you, you knew somebody and then, you know, you started taking pictures and then you started saying, Hey, I can do this. And then, you know, they were like, yeah, let's do that. Or did they see your style and then say, we need you? No, nothing like that at all. Um, mm. The Pagani one happened Second, so the Mercedes one happened first, maybe 2012, 2013. Um, another photographer that I knew from the internet, we had befriended each other. Uh, his name's Tamer Majdere. He's a German photographer. Um, he did some work with Mercedes right at the time. I mean, they had been running a, they had started taking Instagram seriously about six months beforehand and uh, sent some German influencers because that's where the only Mercedes-Benz official account was run out of um, to the United States. Mm -hmm. um, Tamer said, hey, I'm coming to town. You know, I'd love to hang out. You should come join the shoot. We'll get you paid a little bit of bread. And um, and we had like the AMG team and five AMG sports cars. Mm -hmm. uh, they were still selling the SLS at that time. So we had like an SLS, a G63, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And uh, drove around shooting pictures in LA. And that was sort of my intro to fellow named Tilo Vessel who had started uh, the social media program there. He was sort of the uh, Kevin Costner in the uh, field to dream, uh, field of dreams sure. epic of uh, Mercedes spending money on social media. Sure. But, you know, he, he, he got what he needed out of us. The program took off. And um, because I had a seat at the table uh, early on, I was offered a lot of opportunities through Mercedes-Benz head office in Stuttgart wow. uh, to That's travel great. with them. To, um, yeah, they took me all over the world and we had some great times and, uh, you know, it was cool to help them sort of 
conceptualize and invent the uh, social media road trip idea that is still so prevalent today. Yeah. Has, um, um, speaking of that social media stuff, how, I get the impression that you, you and I share the same opinion of social media and that it's not, I don't know, it's, it's not always good for humanity, but um, how has social media changed photography and portfolios and, and do you think it's been a good thing for people or a bad thing, just opinions on social media in general? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, you know, it just really depends on where you're coming from and, and where you see yourself going. You know, the, certainly the, the entire school of thought that occurred before now is probably a little hostile or bitter about it because, you know, people who train for a long time on a specific process are left wondering what to do, getting paid one-tenth what they used to. Um, but, you know, that's like the churn, man. Sure. That's how life works. Yeah. Just about the time when everything is going the way you always wanted to do. New deal. <laughs> something, right. something changes. So um, I don't know if there's any reasonable expectation that, especially for the rest of our lifetimes, this ever won't be the case. I mean, can you imagine a reality now where some groundbreaking, quote unquote, black swan technology doesn't come up every 10 or 15 years and uh, overturn some facet of society? Sure. Social media is just a, a little facet of the greater churn we're going through right now with this whole electronic technology connecting us, yeah. giving us the ability to evaluate each other socially in ways we did not before. Sure. So. I mean, yeah, in the old, in the old pre-digital days, it was like photographers like yourself would have had to submit and pay for listings in all the big books and and uh send them out mm -hmm. to agencies and stuff like that and not just it, it's easy in, in a sense i feel like it's easier for people to be discovered and and get work from bigger bigger names but at the same time it's like man there's a lot of stuff out there and it's, it really is hard to stand out so i guess you gotta try to get your work to speak some for you and also some old-fashioned marketing and um you know just just uh being there's a, also big layers of this happening at the agency level as well. It's not directly related to the creative part. You know, I've had a lot of interesting experiences lately with uh, ad agencies where, you know, they basically have fired all the senior level people. If, if it didn't, you know, let's not make any confusion that the, the economy was screwed before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. It was, it was way going down and, uh, and that just doubled it up. So sure. All the senior level people, who had decades of experience, who were great creative directors. Really, for me, the joy of the whole gig was working with a more experienced artist who could teach me more about myself and my own artwork. Sure. And, you know, I like collaborating with other artists. So that was great. Now they, those people have all left or retired or gotten fired. And sure. what happened now is they pretty much have just given all the junior level, associate level creative directors, the senior level titles, they keep their junior level pay and make really <laughs> bad decisions in senior level positions. And, um, I, I've unfortunately had a lot of imagery the past couple of years that like we shoot some great pictures on set, like creative is really clear. I'll do some onset retouching, get a result that everyone's like, wow, yeah, this looks great. And then like, you know, some retouching firm will bid three rounds of retouching. And I just watched this email chain go down to seven rounds of retouching. 
and uh, you know the junior level creative is chasing chasing their tail in a circle trying to figure out how this and that. Wow. We get to the end of it and the images don't look anything like the onset comps. I have to put them next to each other and think, how did you get from here to, to there? Sure. That's, that's crazy. So, uh, Interesting. you know, the, the, and that's a lot of, you know, those aren't people that have decades of experience doing catalogs and out of home advertising. Those are people whose sole experience and feeling about photographers they want to work with and so on is from Instagram. Sure. And, um, well, I definitely, I definitely see some of that, like in our area here, there's, there's a lot of young enthusiasm for photography, but I, it, and I'm no, you know, pro with decades of experience either. I mean, I've been shooting for, for 15 years, but, um, you see a lot of people get in over their heads as shooters too. And they get, they have a couple of good shots that get some traction somewhere and somebody sees it. Then they're, they're doing a shoot for a company and uh, blow it. And all of a sudden that company's got a real bad t- taste in their mouth for, you know, car photographers or, or their process or, or something. And uh, I don't know, mm-hmm. I've, I've just seen a lot of that. And, and there's obviously a lot of people that come and go because they, they think, yeah, this is what I want to do. And then they, they have a really hard time in it and they, they burn bridges or they, they turn in some bad work that just, you know, burnt the bridge down and, uh, and then that's, then it's over. So I just was curious, like I had a, Oh, go for it. I had an art director say to me, uh, recently, uh, last summer I was working with somebody and, um, on set, they just sort of said, Oh, do you know this guy? And I said, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, there, they, said, what do you think? Blah, blah, blah. We talked for a little while and they said, well, he, he's, a, he's a one-hit wonder. Hmm. I said, what do you mean by that? And she said, uh, well, we hired him to take 20 pictures and one of them was great. <laughs> yeah, that's Ouch. not good. That's not good. Ouch. It really speaks to what you're saying, though. Yeah. How do you feel like the industry is moving, just, just opinions and perspectives and stuff from you, but um, with the way maybe styles are going or, or photographers coming in, do you, do you think that there's any going to, or be any difficulties ahead for the industry with this whole Instagram thing with young art art directors and young executives making decisions? I mean, is it, is it doomed or or is it going to correct itself as time goes on? Yeah, I think it's, I, I, I mean, I, choose actively to believe that it's self-correcting like most systems they sort of find balance eventually even though there's a lot of froth right now you know again to use that term the churn it's like there's a lot of froth in the market um and when the water is all cloudy and you can't really see what's going on it's easy to to have all these issues but uh, cream always rises to the top sure that's just how it goes it might take five ten years or whatever but uh We'll get there. Yeah, and with everything that's been happening across the country and the world for the past year and a half, it definitely hasn't made uh, some things easy. I know a few people we've talked to in this podcast, uh, a couple of you know the last few interviews, people have said their business has actually been, you know, photography has been busy. Um, but I've experienced um, I've experienced a number of clients just you know budgets got cut, things got moved, um, a lot of things just got put on hold. Um, at least from my experience, but other people have had better successes than, than me. That's good. 
Um, but it'll be good that now that hopefully things are calming down with pandemic stuff and states are opening up again and, and hopefully companies will be ready to spend some money and, and get things rolling again, creatives uh, back at work and, and doing some good stuff. Yeah, I'm interested to see what happens with that. I think there might be a second lull. You know, there's definitely a first lull um, when the pandemic hit. And um, certainly in California on commercial productions, there was no way to shoot because you couldn't get uh, an insurance certificate um, mm. until uh, COVID had been identified pretty clearly as a workers' comp issue. Sure. Um, there was no way to do it legit. So we couldn't for like six months maybe or four months or something. Um, I think the second lull will probably actually be marketing money from these companies because as I'm sure you've seen, there's massive supply chain shortages. Right. Um, and especially with the non-domestic car companies uh, or even the domestic car companies on their, on their chip shortages. Right. Um, the rest of the world does not have the vaccine. We're very clearly entering a K-shaped recovery where countries that have vaccines can go back to work like us and countries that do not have vaccines like Japan. You know, my wife's Japanese and uh, it's freaking bad over there right now, man. Hmm. I mean, we're fully vaccinated and she wants to go see her family for the first time in a year and a half and cannot do it. Wouldn't oh. even be able to travel with in Japan. Toyota just shut down a couple plants that make uh, RAV4s and RXs because there was a, a supplier outbreak, yeah. a COVID outbreak at a supplier. So, so I guess the point I'm driving at is um, what, what are the actual cars that these companies are intending to market? And if you don't have any cars to sell, then why would you pay for marketing material? Sure. Um, car executives are already saying this, which means it will domino effect down the chain into less advertising materials being created for a certain period of time until they can solve all these supply chain issues. Sure. Uh, so I, I anticipate there probably will be some little dip in the work, a little bottleneck maybe this summer or this fall, but hmm. you know, another, just another bump in the road. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear your perspective on that. I, I, I'm always curious about it myself and fighting some of my own issues and stuff. But um, as as creatives, as self-employed people, I you know I always keep keep up the good fight and always try to stay creative and always shoot. And even if you're not getting um, the big jobs, um, always try to make the most of even the small jobs and just be creative and work on new ideas and new concepts. But, um, we're getting close to the end here before we wrap it up, uh, Richard, I'd like to ask you some of your car history, just, uh, out of curiosity, you said back in the day you had a Nissan, uh, 350Z and, uh, just mm -hmm. curious kind of what your interests are. If you, you know, let's not say, you know, if money were no object, but like, let's say you could go out and buy something you, you really wanted. So no Paganis and everything. We, we know that that's at a different level, but. Um, what, what's some of the stuff that you just have always loved and would love to own or have owned? That's tough. So I haven't really owned a sports car since I had that Nissan. I sold the car and used every dollar that I got for it on cameras and have kind of never looked back. Um, just like getting involved in, in PR work and in social media stuff, I get to drive a lot of press cars yep. and, uh, you know, I, I grew up in Louisiana with some friends, um, and my mentor is a, a very hardworking, wealthy dude who's got a lot of top-flight sports cars. Mm -hmm. um, so I had a lot of driving opportunities to do this during my Pagani time. I mean, I had a had a director's title at the company, so I got to drive the car whenever I wanted. Yeah. Um, 
for a year or two. And uh, those, those experiences probably ruined me for, <laughs> for just wanting a car that I, I could ever afford. Yeah. Um, if I was going to buy a sports car, it would be a track car. The, 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 uh, a decentralized uh, chassis layout in a sports car is, is just really it's so, so good. You know, when the, most sports cars are built cab over construction. So when you turn the steering wheel, uh, this whole series of things is happening to um, sort of get what you've done down into the actual chassis. Um, whereas in a decentralized chassis, um, which in road cars is a very limited, you know, Enzo's and Lyra's and yep. F McLaren F1s and stuff like this. Um, so what, don't find it that often. give us an example but, of a track car, like a, like a mono or something like that. Something just sort of like, Oh, motors. sure. A mono is a, monos don't really make that much downforce and it kind of scares the shit out of me. Sure. Uh, how slippery they are. Um, I've had a couple of goes in one of those and it's just not quite sticky enough are you talking but, um, track like only a, car track sure i mean if you're on a track using i wouldn't that's suicide to drive on the road <laughs> yikes <laughs> you're a speed bump to some lady in a suburban sure um but yeah it would be you know i'd get like a i think um like an uh used f3000 car or an old formula atlantic car where you could get something maybe like five six hundred horsepower and a 1200 pound chassis yeah. And um, you could you could really have a lot of fun in that. And, and it wouldn't cost a ton of money. You know, you could probably do it for the cost of a, you know, a well-tuned Mazda Miata or something like that. To even get like a pro Mazda, a Renesis powered um, Mazda car from 10 years ago. And you sure. Go 170 miles an hour through a turn, you know, something you're never going to be able to do in a sports car. Yep. Oh, I hear you. And yeah, it's great. I hear you. It's great when you don't have to pay for airbags and seatbelts and all that crap. Yeah. So. <laughs> Well, that's that's a, that's a solid answer. I, I can I can respect that, and I'm actually going to the racetrack later. If it was today. on the road, though. On the road, yeah. Let's give us. Give it was it, on the yeah. Give us a road car. It's an F50, dude. It's an F50. Every Boom. Time. I know it's a. There I know you. it's an expensive car. I, I got to put a lot of time on one, and uh, it's just amazing. You could take the roof off. I've never driven a more direct car. You've you driven know, it's like one. Somebody put a. Uh, I mean, my friend that I mentioned um, had one for many years. Okay. I got to put some miles on, the on track. the black one back on your around, Instagram? You know? The black F50? Exactly. Okay. The black the black F50. Yeah, it was, yeah. Actually, it was the highest mileage F50 in the world. Good for um, him. And Forza wrote an article in the early 2000s and nicknamed the car The Rat. We used to call it the F50K because it had 55,000 miles on it. And I bet it's but, the best um, running one as well. I bet it is. It was a little gravelly, but... They're, they're all kind of, you know, it was a real racing engine. It has a chain driven motor, no power steering. It's just a really direct car. Yeah. And dude, uh, I love that answer. Cause know, I, yeah. I agree. I always ask people cause I've shot a good number of F fifties and F forties for, for ads and stuff. And they, I, I am a F 50 guy. I love the F 40, but the F 50, everybody loves the F 40 mate. They made, they made, 1,400 F40s, right. and they made 349 F50s. Right. <laughs> so, and also, they gave an F40 to any journalist who wanted to drive it, and they notoriously didn't even sell the F50. They would only lease it to you, and they never let journalists drive it. So it's a really underappreciated car. I, I agree. Um, you know, the F40 is, is hodgepodge. The F40, the shape is cool. That's what everybody likes, that cocaine 80s look. But yep. it's, a, it's not that, you know, it's got a great steering rack, and it's got a great shifting mechanism. Otherwise, it's... You know, the air conditioner is leaking onto the passenger's feet. Half the car's carbon, half of it's Kevlar, some of it's plexiglass, some of it's steel, some of it's aluminum. 
because they didn't have the materials technology to make the car they actually wanted to make, which was the F50. They yeah. just finally did it the way they wanted to. Well, people always just base their opinions. And most people I ask that, uh, that of, they, they've seen, they've seen neither of the cars in person. They have zero experience with the cars. They're just basing it on of what all the journalists say and how the F40 is this and that. And the, but I'm like, no, 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 you guys don't get it. The F50 is like epically more rare, more special. And yeah, maybe, Maybe the, that one journalist said it's not as fast as the F40 in a straight line or top speed or whatever, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The F50 just is such a wild car, and I definitely, definitely get that one. That's sweet. Yeah. Um, Much better built. And yeah. Every, also, every F40 owner I know that takes the car seriously and like tracks it and shit, they have aftermarket wheels, aftermarket brakes, and an aftermarket brake biasing system. Hmm. You know, in the hood, the uh, yeah. valve control system that yeah. controls the brake bias. Cause the, um, because the stock the, one the just stock can't, can't handle terrible. it. Yeah. Interesting. No, not at all. Interesting. Well, um, this is about an hour now, so I think we should wrap it up. Um, Richard, it's, it's been a, obviously a great pleasure. I'd love to chat with you again, uh, uh soon. Uh, maybe we could do this again, uh, um, in the future. Um, but in the meantime, I, I hope to work with you and, uh, hang out with you here soon. And, um, yeah, Ben, anything to say? Hey, thanks for coming on. <clears throat> thanks for uh, <clears throat> working with all the changes that we had to do to make this happen, but it's been really cool to catch up and kind of geek out about your CGI rig, hear about what you've been doing, how you've developed your style, and uh, yeah, this has been awesome. I think we could go on for hours and hours, yeah. but we don't want to bore you, so. <laughs> um, if you guys, anyone listening to this does not follow Richard on Instagram, you can follow him simply at his, uh, his uh, Instagram name is just simply RVT3 and you're going to find his, uh, his incredible work. So go follow him and uh, be sure to follow this podcast on Instagram as well at S Speed Media. And that's all we got today. So thank you for listening and we will come back again soon with uh, another great podcast. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.